podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Buzz. And of course, you will know at this stage that I am your co-host, Trev Downey, joined by my friend Dave Hendrick to discuss in this particular episode, True Detective Season 4, Episode 3, the third of our commentary podcast following the episodes uh, very much enjoying this as a thing to do with my life I have to admit uh, does feel a bit like uh, oh yeah this is what you're supposed to be podcasting about I don't know about you Dave but I just find myself kind of whether it's not whether or not it's coming across or whether or not the final product is a thing that people are enjoying as much as their football stuff I'm enjoying the hell out of this in a way that I fully expected to, to be honest, but it's just I'm I'm enthused by it in a way that I haven't been for this medium for a while. Oh, me too. This is by far my favorite thing that I'm doing right now. And I do a lot of podcasts, but this is by far my favorite thing that I'm doing right now. Um because it's it's more about enjoyment and entertainment. Whereas the other stuff well, it's it's a job, and it, it feels like a job at times, and it feels like you're m- a bit more invested because of the emotional tie to the club and whatever else. This is just for pure enjoyment and entertainment. Yeah, and uh, I think that pressure release valve is much needed, especially actually given the context of the other podcasting that we do, which, of course, we absolutely uh, understand is an immense privilege to be able to do uh, mm. in the context of following uh, the club that we do, and they're doing so well. And, you know, I got to be up fa- close and personal with it recently, and more of that on those other shows. But straight to the point here, and I want to start off just running something past you because of course we're not the only ones who came up with the uh, uh idea of doing a reaction pod to something as i suppose uh culturally significant as a new season of true detective and i went today because i knew you know i was running behind myself a little bit in terms of prep time and i was trying to do things while i was doing other things and i thought well i wonder is there half decent podcast about it out there that i could possibly listen to and maybe glean some insight or at least find out some things that i can say that i disagree with uh, as a sort of a go-to for a bit of content well to say that i did find a bit of content would be an understatement I, 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 I think I'm deliberately not going to say who this was. Let's just suffice it to say it's a very, very, very high budget, uh, probably got seven to eight producers, some, possibly some writers. Uh, it's got three talking heads and they all represent a very well known publication. Let's just leave it at that, shall we? Uh, there's a lot of money behind this podcast and the voices are the type of voices you might expect. They're, um, uh, pretty diverse. Um, I think it was two female, one male. Uh, and you know, they had their own take on the show. Let me just touch off if i may some of the things that they found completely engaging about this particular episode well of course you won't be surprised to know that one or two of them leaned into the mine uh, the climate change aspect on the back of the mining a uh, one guy uh interpreted the flash forward dream sequence that navarro has where she falls and hits hit uh, falls on the ice and is stunned for a moment and she finds herself in a desert 
the way he interpreted that was not some flashback to her time in the military, but rather as a future dystopia where the ice has all melted. That was how he read it. Uh, later on, uh, the incredibly powerful scene of the birth uh, of the child, very dramatic, incredibly well done. It's a flashback scene that Navarro has, uh, uh, where we see Navarro meeting Annie Kay, uh, and we see her seeing Annie in her natural element. The takeaway for the one of the ladies there was, or at least it was a positive experience of birth. All the experiences of birth on TV recently have been very traumatic. And again, actually, I thought that was to give them their due a good point because. I, I've noticed that too, and I kind of wonder if this is not some Netflix agenda to do with the darker side of me thinks about that. You know, is it you know regi- population reduction by uh, by proxy? The other thing they picked up on was well, the white people want the mine and therefore are bad, whereas the native people don't want the mine and therefore are good. That was the obvious cultural thing they went to. And the last thing they went to was the scene, which is a really tricky scene in the in the piece today that we're going to talk about, where Liz Danvers is trying to uh, wipe off the temporary markings that her stepdaughter Leah has put in her face, which are um, representative of it, the local uh, culture tribal tattoo. Um, and it's a difficult scene for so many reasons, but they didn't get into the difficulty really of it. They didn't really talk about any of the more complex issues. They went, well, they did eventually, but they went straight for, you know, you guessed it, the cultural erasure angle. And I just thought, Jesus Christ, a terrible set of lads. You know what I mean? Kind of people who are doing a podcast purely with a political agenda in mind. Yeah. I hope we can avoid that. I did want to mention it mainly because I like to, to point out occasionally that there's an awful lot of stuff out there, Dave. Yeah. And not a lot of it is good, man. No, it's true. And there's a lot of stuff out there where people, like you said, go into it with a set agenda and they're going to twist everything to fit that agenda, regardless of the shape and size. It's election season across the pond. So everything becomes political to the Americans in many ways. And everything has to be skewed one way or another. And there's no such thing as a middle ground anymore. And there's no such thing seemingly as just watching a television show, enjoying the television show, immersing yourself in the television show and talking about the television show. You have to find 43 things that you can link to the agenda that you walked in with at the very start. There's also a lot of people with the greatest respect in all mediums of podcasting, in, including the one that we normally operate in, not our outlet, but others, where people speak in sentences that don't mean anything, but they think it makes them sound intelligent. Yeah. And there's always going to be an audience for that type of drivel who'll listen to that and go, oh, that's a real deep thinker. I hadn't thought of that. Even though... They didn't think of it because it's not a real thing. They'll think this person speaking in my ears, it has a platform and therefore they're speaking on this with authority. And if you speak on something confidently enough and with as many fancy words as possible, you will fool people into thinking you know what you're, what you're on about and you will alter their view of things and you'll get a small percentage will move to your way of thinking. And in circumstances like what you've laid out there on said podcast, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to move people 
to their side of the aisle, to their side of the river. They want people backing up their arguments, even though their arguments don't need to be made. And it really and truly isn't always that deep. No, I have to say, that's what really pissed me off. It was like, I understand looking at something like um, one of the ones we may do in the the near future, leave the world behind and saying, oh, look at all the things here they're trying to do, the buttons they're trying to push. Look at this. That's different. That's a different type of analysis. And it's kind of um, clear eyed and detached uh, and taking everything um, at face value uh, and, and then trying to dig underneath it, not coming in, like you said, an agenda. I just think that is the death knell for a lot of stuff. And listen, uh, I'm willing to broke any kind of criticism. We do live in an era, Trev, where everybody is offended by everything. And there's this rush to chastise stuff from the past, from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, that was appropriate at the time, is no longer viewed as appropriate because the world has become so terrified of itself. Yeah. And thus you have to dig into everything and criticize everything from that mindset. Like, you know, just as an example, when, when Matthew Perry passed away, there was a rush by largely millennials to point out all of the things that were wrong with the TV series friends and all of the things that, you know, were inappropriate and how much of it was the Chandler character. And that's, Okay, if you're looking at it now and you didn't see it at the time, you may not understand what that show was and how important it was at the time and how fitting it was at the time. But then don't talk about it. Don't talk about something if you don't know. If you didn't live through it, if you didn't experience it in that time, don't talk about it. But they want to talk about it because they have to get their political agendas across it's the same thing you're talking about with this. It, it, it's 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 dispiriting, and I, I I understand this is going to sound like a little bit of a soapbox, but in fact, if anything, it's the polar opposite. Uh, if you'll excuse the uh, literal Arctic pun there, I just really it, it bugs me because I just I want to listen to content and I want to feel like the people are engaging with it in an enthusiastic and open and honest way. I work in a field of education where several excellent books have been taken off the reading list because now you, you see children are too fragile to understand concepts and to hold contrasting ideas yeah. in their head at the same time. So we can't have to kill a mockingbird because there might be liberal use of a word which is obviously insulting and inappropriate. But you see, you can't read that word in context without being tarnished by it and therefore becoming a bad person it is absolutely insane um, I'm trying to do Of Mice and Men which has also been um, um, hooked uh, or is about to be because again similar things ideas in it, a portrayal of a time that is hyper realistic and so therefore absolutely valuable but you see we can't have that because we can't use these uh, terms or talk about anything that does use them because therefore obviously uh, we are being corrupted by said ideas it's it's just Perish the thought we allow children to think for themselves that, that's the that, that's Perish the damaging the thought thing. That they'd be allowed and, to form their own opinions and you're right and you see that's what filters into these podcasts you get these guys like you said they sound they're convinced they sound intelligent and sadly there's a whole audience out there for them who will also think they sound intelligent 
And I don't know, maybe maybe we're just getting a little bit old and cynical, but it just seems trite to me. And I want to just actually we're going to get into a little bit of this already, a little bit of a culture war straight away. Um, hopefully this will go down well with the lad who said that this show was woke, <laughs> which is absolutely news to me. I have to say uh, that you and I would ever be uh, <laughs> confused for someone in that category. But here we go. Um, I wanted to get something out of the way. I mentioned the Tuttle Corporation the last time mm. and I really I, I, and I never came back. To it and I felt crap about leaving it there. And um, the reason I brought it up was that the the Tuttle Corporation are the ones who, through the uh, sort of shell company or the 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 NGO rather, uh, 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 as they as as Pete traced the uh, the funding, it goes back to the Tuttle Corporation, which is a very clear link to the name of the family who were these mega rich. Um, people behind all the real awful nastiness the pedophile rings and all the rest of it in season one and that was a clear and overt link to season one and you and I have already talked about the many other ones from the symbolism of the swirl to the mention of Travis Cole and Dave you've got a little take for us today on how that's going over with season one Mm. creator Nick Pizzolatto do tell us yeah, so um, he was doing some sort of question and answer thing on Instagram. And obviously, people have great interest in his views on season four because there was, you know, there was some controversy around this in that he had written the first three. He was obviously the, the creator, the, the mastermind behind the show. And he had come out publicly and said he had a brilliant idea for season four. He was looking forward to making it happen. And then all of a sudden he kind of got shelved and Issa Lopez and, and her idea was brought forward. And as it turns out, Night Country was originally meant to be kind of a standalone season and HBO decided to bring it in under the True Detective umbrella. And Nick Pizzolato has not taken all that very well. Um, he said that people couldn't blame him for this season. He said that when, when asked about the, the links to the Tuttle family, he said, haha, so stupid because obviously it was a family, a cult. It was a, a business, but it wasn't like a conglomerate the way it's been portrayed in season four and he was also asked about the link to rust's father and he responded as in people were saying is there any possibility that rust shows up you know and he responded saying nick oh sorry matthew doesn't show up nor would he as if to say, Matthew's with me in this, he wouldn't be involved in something like that. Um, someone else said, uh, I've seen people on Reddit claim that you actually helped write the first episode and that the story they're doing was actually Nick's idea first. And he said, I certainly did not have any input on this story or anything else. Can't blame me. Now... To me, when you say can't blame me, you are immediately saying, I don't like this. 
yeah. this isn't good and you can't blame me that this isn't good. Which I think is is in very, very poor taste. I think it makes him come across quite bitter. And I thought Issa Lopez showed great class in her response where she said he's entitled to his opinions. But as a creator, you have a relationship with what you have created, with your story, with your idea. So she was absolving absolving him of blame. And then she said that she wrote this this season with love for him and his work and love for the people who loved that first season. So she showed immense class. And I thought he lacked any semblance of class in that late night back and forth with different people on Instagram. It's great context. I love it. And you just brought me back to that podcast that I listened to to start the sh- that I started the show talking about. And on it, there was a few throwaway bitchy comments about Nick Pizzolatto and how this couldn't possibly have been written by him because if it was, the birthing scene would have had at least three or four topless women and one woman sliding down a pole and so on and so forth. And I was going, Oh, where's this Pizzolatto hate coming from? Is he, mm. is he, is he considered to be, um, quite uncouth or very much, uh, you know, have a, this misogynistic streak or whatever? And it doesn't take much, if we're being honest, for people to go that route. The aforementioned of mice and men, um, I was reading stuff today to my second or third years where they were absolutely slating it as a misogynistic tract. Whereas, you know, I said, no, it's just a very reasonable portrayal of attitudes at the time. The book itself is not misogynistic. It's a portrayal of a misogynistic society. We have to get to 2.0 in our thinking level. So I would be interested to see how that works as things progress, because we certainly have a potential feud set up here, but it's nice to hear that Miss Lopez has failed to take any bait. Um, and we, it remains to be seen whether there's any, um, truth to the accusations or rumors as to, uh, you know, the origins of the show and it being shoehorned into a certain category. We'll get back to that. No doubt it'll come up again. I'm delighted you've given us that context. But we continue to be enthused by said show. And episode three brought the goods again, I thought, Dave. And let's just work our way through it because that's simply the best way in this case. In this case, there's not so much of the what's going on here or odd little um, things that we need to analyze or little moments that are um, completely puzzling. This is a more of a by the numbers show. And if, uh, if there's one area this show leads into, we were wondering, I mean, do you think this is going to get more supernatural than uh, science fiction or more supernatural than a straight detective show? And it was still a question. And I think there could still be some rational explanations for a lot of the stuff that's going on. I mean, it could be the case that you've got some sort of mine related stuff. It's being hinted very, very readily with the poisoning of the water and so on. There could be some mine related stuff that might have echoes of, you know, the, um, the theory of what happened during the uh, Salem witch trials where there was some sort of ergot that got into the water supply and everyone was suffering with hysteria. There could be something here, but man alive, they are laying it on thick in terms of there's more to it than just some mine related stuff. There are people not just seeing things, there are bodies uh, being possessed and all sorts going on this episode. It's, it's a belter. We, it starts with Annie Kay 
in her kind of natural element, um, helping a woman give birth. And we see this in a flashback scene where Navarro was come to arrest her for her uh, um, activity in terms of being a mine protester. Um, I couldn't help but notice in those early scenes that there's quite a striking similarity between Danvers and Leah. And I, I read some quotes uh, by the girl who plays Leah who mentions that as well. And I think that's going to come in later on when we see how viscerally um, – uh, the Danvers reacts uh, in a couple of situations. It's interesting. Um, we move from there to uh, out on the ice and Hank is rallying the troops, uh, a group of lads who look like sort of local militia types or certainly hunters. They get referred to in a very dismissive way as Hank's hillbillies and rednecks. And of course, again, there could be some uh, little nods and winks of a political nature happening here. Uh, let's be honest. Uh, but anyway, Hank is rallying those troops and we get to see a different side of him. He's quite authoritative. He's standing up in the back of, of a, of a, of a, um, a pickup trailer or something like that. And he's giving the guys, uh, their orders. Let's go get this fucker. He says at one point and Navarro accosts him and says, Hey, 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 we want to get him alive because there's still a real potential that he is not the killer. And she, Hank has already decided in his mind that he's the killer. And he yeah. says, do we? So in terms of that opening sequence, those couple of scenes, uh, anything strike you there? Anything you want to go down um, the line of, 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 of different analysis, whether you disagree with in my portrayal of it? No, no, I think you've hit, hit the nail on the head. I think it is interesting to see Hank in that more authoritative role. Um, clearly, he was the authoritative figure in the police department once upon a time and has been somewhat emasculated by Danvers and the way Danvers treats him. But you see it come out in the way he treats his son as well. Like he is quite the, you know, the alpha in his relationship with his son. So it was interesting to see that as well, in, in, in this regard as well, where it's, you know, a, 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 like you said, kind of a ragtag militia. It's interesting to see that he takes on that position of, of authority there that he, he feels like he's the, the lead dog in that pack as well. And he's dismissive of Navarro. So it is just Danvers that has that over him. It's not anybody else. It's just with Danvers that he becomes kind of submissive to him. So you wonder, is there more there that we don't know about in terms of their relationship, in terms of how he feels towards her? Does he harbor some unspoken feelings for her that he's, he's trying to suppress and trying to hide because he knows they won't be reciprocated, but he's oh. willing, and therefore he's willing to be a bit of a whipping boy for her. Do you think when we listen to, well, when we discover later on that uh, Hank has withheld information around mm. Annie's murder, um, taking that and then maybe flashing back to the quite amusing scenes where we were saying last week, it looks like he's getting played badly by, oh, yeah. uh, by some Russian bot um, in terms of sending off money. Uh, do you think there's a chance here that maybe Hank uh, will prove himself to be a terrible set of lads in terms of he may well be in the in the pocket of the mine? Is that what is that what we're getting oh, at here? It's, it's very possible. It's like, very, where else, very where possible. Else he, where else is he getting the money to send off to this woman? And how? Wh- why else is he refusing to pass on information? It seems a bit hinky, doesn't it? It does. It does. And I'm still I'm still caught by 
the fact that when she asked him for pictures of her, he sent pictures of pictures, which yeah. would be harder for anyone to, you know, to use in some sort of compromise to alter, to analyze properly. So is there, is there more hidden behind Hank? Is it was it was he actually taking precautions in that regard? Yeah. Or yeah. is he just a thicko who doesn't understand that what she's asking for is a selfie and not a framed picture of you and your son or whatever he was sending? I get I get the impression with three episodes ago there's going to be a lot more of Hank reveal. And as you mm. as you so rightly pointed out, this is a very good uh actor who has a serious uh, uh array of stuff behind him uh this part is going to work out to be something of heft so i look forward to seeing how hank develops whether it's into the bad guy or some sort of a gray area chap we'll see we have the next scene oh of course by the way let's just flag up here that at one point uh, at the end of that navarro looks down and then this beautiful bright orange an actual orange you can eat is there against the white background. She picks it up. She puts it in her pocket. Remember the orange folks. It's coming back. Uh, let's go to the next scene of note there where Pete and Danvers are having one of their over and backs. And we see this kind of, you really get, I, th- I think her attitude towards him is quite, um, uh, yeah, yes, it's, it's, it's borderline abusive, but I do think she's very interested in helping him to become a better detective. And you do see that nurturing side in a way, the way she encourages him to think, mm. like you imagine she's done with Navarro before. Um, and we do get to see a lot of positive sides of Liz in this show, uh, this particular episode. But let's just deal with this one where we get some details about what was referred to last week, the Wheeler case, the yeah. Wheeler incident. Uh, and, it's done brilliantly because Danvers is telling him that uh, the Wheeler thing is this murder suicide. William Wheeler, who um, sent this 18 year old girlfriend of his to the hospital several times with all sorts of horrible, horrible injuries, um, broken jaws and the like. And he's a terrible piece of work, a really awful creature. And she knew and they knew and Navarro knew that something bad was going to happen. And she's really visibly moved. It's fantastic work by by Foster. She she just carries the emotion very well on her face. You can see she's borderline breaking up, which I would imagine. And I'm sure Pete imagines it would take quite a lot for her to cry. And she's very much on the on the verge of tears. As she says, there was nothing we can do. And then we visually see a flashback scene of younger Danvers and younger Navarro going to the house to confront the, the, the guy and see what's happened. And when they get there, you can see through a doorway that there is a dead body, the girl in question. And you can see the back of a fella sitting on a chair. And she says to him, they were both dead when we got there. But what we see mm. is him looking around menacingly and beginning to whistle. And that is obviously at the root of whatever the issue is here. She plays it off and says, you know, because she's told um, um, Pete that, you know, they, they were both dead when they got there. Um, Dan, Danvers says that Navarro blamed her for not being more proactive. And she says it got nasty. And that's yeah. her explanation. So what did you make it out? Why do you think it is that she's hiding the truth of what happened there? There's clearly an awful lot more to this because what I noticed in her retelling was that it was quite short on detail. 
And the one thing we know about Danvers is that she's incredibly detail orientated. And there's no way she's forgotten any detail about this case. And the reason we know that is because she has an amazing recall. Later in this episode, we see a picture of a girl wearing an Ariana Grande T-shirt. Yeah, yeah. And she can recall the exact time of year that that album came out, that that picture would have been taken. So she she has remembered a random album from years before. There's absolutely no way she doesn't remember every single detail. And the way she did it was she she tied it to Leah's birthday. Yeah. And and and, and I thought that was bur- that's exactly the way someone's mind like that works, isn't it? They make these associations and they can make build a chain backwards. I think what Danvers has done is she's created a block. She's built a wall around that case. Yeah. And what she's done is she's written herself a little script of the bare minimum that she's going to tell anybody. And I would imagine the only two people that actually are alive to tell the story of what actually took place in that house when they got there are her and Navarro. And my guess is one of her or Navarro killed the fella. What's your, what's your gut feeling? Cause I, I imagine it's, I imagine it's Danvers. I think it's probably Danvers and, uh, maybe Navarro uh, objects. I think mm. it's likely to go that way because I think everyone's expecting it's going to be Navarro, but I think we're going to discover that it's actually Liz. Yeah, I think Liz killed him. That that's yeah. my my thought as well yeah. is that Liz killed him. And she doesn't know how to deal with her fragrant breach of the law and all that kind of stuff, so she probably shuts down. And, and she put, boots put, Danvers out of the department, so Danvers is not there as a constant reminder. Yeah, Navarro. Because, yeah, pushes, yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry, she boots Navarro out. Because the thing is, with Navarro, with her and Navarro at the start, it's not even that she doesn't like Navarro. She just doesn't want to see Navarro yeah. because Navarro brings up the memory of this case, of that incident. That's it. And I think you're so right when you're building up on the wall because she seems to have become this different person than she used to be in mm. a previous life. And uh, in the scene that you mentioned there at the start of it, she says to, to Pete, yeah, like, I, I hate Navarro. Yeah, uh, I hate everybody. I hate you. You know, that's basically that's that's her default setting. And there are two little set pieces now that come up. Um, one of them is the one you just mentioned. But before that, we go back to the ice and we see uh, Navarro still out there looking around and sort of gets an idea that that you get the idea there's some sounds in the background. She, in disgust, takes the orange out of her pocket, fires it away, and it comes rolling back to her her feet. Now, I think anyone with any sort of film literacy is immediately thinking of The Shining, where that happens with Danny as he's uh, playing on the corridors of the... uh, of the the Overlook Hotel, certainly that's what came to my mind. Whatever way you slice it, it's weird, Dave. Yeah, it is, and that's exactly what I thought of as well. Um, it is weird, and it, again, it does point to this more supernatural theme that that we're kind of building towards in this in this show. Yeah, it does, and it's a really really good scene. It's a really it's, it's it the visual of the the orange as she before she picks it up. Yeah, and then like you said, then that scene it's just it's so well written, it's so well thought out, and it's so well pulled off. 
I think, you know, it's it's a real testimony to the simplicity of uh, like how you can do something that's so simple. That's but it's such a jarring thing. And like like you said, it really does emphasize, OK, we're through the looking glass here. This is we're, we're in Ennis. You know, people see things. Things happen. Uh, we know that that um, Evangeline believes very much in that things happen uh and she is by contrast with liz who's later on says you know there's no magic it's not this uh voodoo stuff it's uh there's going to be an answer and that's an interesting dynamic and it reminds you of of of, of previous ones um as you say then we have this set piece and i really like this this is where navarro and danvers are sorting through the evidence in a kind of montage set to music and it like in a very weird way it recalled for me uh one of the most amusing things we were both talking about not that long ago on twitter one of the most amusing scenes in a fantastic tv show called the wire where the entire scene is uh bonk and jimmy examining uh a, a, a crime scene and using variations of the word fuck uh yeah. for two solid minutes uh but they're just examining the, the stuff and looking at each other and share and so we see the, the 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 two central characters here sorting through this evidence montage we have that ariana grande incident you said you, you spoke about um they're interrupted by pete um because they're having a conversation at the time about who each other is shagging and uh Evan Angeline is is absolutely taking the piss out of uh, Liz for being for putting it about a bit, and she says, you know, at one stage he's still fucking Ted, and you know when Pete goes away after being told by Evangeline that he should run fast or else Liz will get yeah. hooks into him. Uh, she says nobody knows about Ted, and Evangeline laughs her and says everybody everybody knows. knows. Yeah, I've I've noted that as well. I just thought that was brilliant. <laughs> Nobody you know, knows about me and Ted. Everybody yeah. knows about you and Ted. It's so <laughs> matter of fact. It's fantastic. And later on, she's sneering at her for being, being on, on Tinder. It's just like, who's on Tinder in, in Ellis? And she says, no, I've expanded my circle a bit. Like, I don't fuck where I eat, she says. And then Evangeline says, well, not anymore. Yeah. So, you know, this is the kind of stuff that, yeah, I do love. I, I love. That car scene is brilliant. That's the two great. of them in the car is an absolutely brilliant scene where it's just the two characters and it's heavily reliant on the chemistry and the dialogue. Yes. And they nail every yes. single bit of it. It's just tremendous. Whether Nick likes it or not, that's one of the strengths of season one is is, is Woody and, and mm. Matt and Matt in the car chatting to each other. One lad completely off the scale uh, with his thoughts. The other lad looking at him going, what are you and why do I have to share my life with you? It's very interesting. Uh, in that sequence, anyway, we find out some stuff. They work out through seeing a, se- a series of photos that would imply there's somebody else there, uh, that there is somebody else who could possibly talk about the relationship. Um, they work out then from another one that, you know, there's the, a change in the hair color uh, and therefore they trace it back to the local hairdresser. I think it's Evangeline who twigs that mm-hmm. um, after Liz has done the, 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 the legwork with looking at the photos and saying the hair colors changed. So there's, we go there's two th- other bits just in, they're in Sorry, that car yeah, yeah. scene. They're just in that car scene as well. One is, is Danvers referring to, because obviously we haven't got there yet now to the car scene. No, we haven't. That's, oh, that's, that's, that's next. That's, that's next. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so where we go next is the two of them going to the hairdresser to to, to see what they can find out, uh, and we find out that she did know Ray, who's Ray Clark, who's the mm. missing scientist, who's now Hank's chief suspect and everyone else's uh, serious person of interest. Um, and we see this kind side to Liz, where she's brilliant. She, like the Evangeline just 
barging straight into the questions and, and Liz extracts the little kid from the room, talks to her about a unicorn called Puddles and says, let's make some mac and cheese. She's actually incredibly tender with the kid and caring and considerate. And it's totally different. It's this maternal side to her that, you know, is in contrast with what we'd be talking about later and what I've already flagged up, where the, her and her adopted daughter seem to have reached this sort of impasse, this awkward teen years confrontation. But when it comes to dealing with little kids, she's absolutely fantastic. But we do find out that, yeah, this girl did know Ray and she did call the police and Ray was obsessed with Annie's tattoo and Annie's tattoo was something that came to her in a dream. And when she got a tattoo and her, it stopped bang into the supernatural stuff again. And so they get a huge amount of information out of this lady. And Navarro is, uh, is sort of guessing that perhaps, uh, Hank is in cahoots with the mine at this stage. She is the one who works that out because the the uh, girl, the hairdresser girl, tells us that Hank was called, and that he and and then we work out he didn't pass on the information. And it's then that we get to this is in the, seeing the car afterwards with the whole Tinder stuff, and uh, you know she says, "What do you do?" You know, like uh, like Danvers says, "Listen, there's no chumpa loompa." <laughs> by, by which she yes. is no chimpalumpa no e-team no voodoo no cosmic yes basically dismissing the idea of of the belief system that navarro holds very close and her culture holds very close yes danvers showing the clear cultural divide there between the white person's mindset and the, the more tribal mindset where they do have these these beliefs and they do believe in spirits and you know, other powers and stuff. And I, I thought that was quite telling and quite dis- just the way she sort of dismissed it. Yeah. Was interesting. And then we get, we get further on and we find out that Danvers doesn't really believe in anything that she can't see herself. Exactly that. She does have that default scientific materialism. I, uh, what I can see, I'll believe, and until I can see it, I won't believe it. And mm. whereas, whereas there's a huge, there's a huge benefit to that uh, uh, in terms of, well, if you are rigorously scientific, like genuinely rigorously scientific in your approach, then that will yield results. And she does seem to have that, like even just her dismissal of the Chupa Loompa, where she's mixing up Oompa Loompa and Chupa Cabra, and Chupa Cabra is, is is a South American. Uh, mm. a, a, a sort of legend of a, this horrible creature and you know that even that it's she has as, as you say utter disdain for anything like that and by comparison she she asks um navarro what do you do like you know i do tinder what do you do uh she says i watch netflix nice little uh, plug for uh netflix and then she says when she's pushed on it she says i pray mm. Liz laughs like she outright laughs at it. Yeah, yeah. Sneakers. So so dismissive of it. Yeah, so dismissive. And then she says, "You talk to God." And I think this is one of the more powerful lines in it. It she is. She says, "You talk to God," and Navarro replies, "No, I listen." Yeah, 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 yeah. Love that. Love I, that. That is just brilliant. It is. And it's, it's just it's the simplicity of the line. She doesn't add anything else to it. And that no. ends the con. That that ends the conversation. Well, there's a gap, and then she says, "Do you ever feel like you just want to like, sort of get out of your get out of where you live and just mm. leave everything behind you and just go?" And and so we get this. She 
all of these people, but primarily our two central characters, are absolutely afflicted by some deep sort of ennui or some sort of feeling of not necessarily being content and not necessarily belonging. And Evangeline's really clear with it there. And she just, she's honest enough to say that she feels like she doesn't fit in. And we get loads of hints about that later on. The, the, you get the, real detail about it. That's yeah. Why she feels like she doesn't fit in. The chat with Kavik and later on mm. Tagax sort of sneers at her for not knowing her native name. These kind of things would might maybe get to the root of why she feels so sort of disenfranchised. Um, anyway, we're up next with Hank uh, and Pete talking to each other. Um, and they're both lying to each other. One guy's saying she didn't tell me anything. The other one's saying, yeah, I don't know anything about it. They're both lying. Uh, that kind of sets that up. And then he accuses Liz of playing Mrs. Robinson with his kid, uh, yes. for which he gets a, a slap. And then we see the Kavik scene where Kavik's out ice fishing and, uh, Danver, uh, sorry, Navarro goes out there to sort of elicit some information to see if, if, if he can find out who this Taggart guy is. He says he'll be able to do it via his network. Uh, he wants some information. She says no. And she, he, she leaves and then she comes back and he just wants to know something about her because the two of them are basically sort of, um, you know, friends with benefits. But he doesn't know anything about her. She's quite elusive in that regard and, and possibly quite aloof, actually, in that regard. She does seem that way, emotionally speaking. And we get some flashback. We get some information from her, you know, that she comes from this abusive household. Her father was a violent alcoholic and uh, they were living in Boston. They come back and her mom is plagued by voices and episodes. And eventually she's murdered and they never found the killer. That's a lot of backstory there. Uh, what did you make of that little interaction with Kavik? And it's it's quite a sweet relationship in many ways. He's like probably so far, although he's a little just borderline sort of wet kind of character. Yeah, I do. He's I a do. I, drip. He's a bit of a drip, but I do kind of like him. Yeah, you know? he he's he's what he seems like he's what she needs yeah, in yeah, in more ways than just the benefits. Yeah, that's a good. He point. seems like he's a genuinely good man like a solid man something she's never had in her life yeah we hear about her father and and what he was like we hear about her mother and what she was like and what she went through <clears throat> and we find out that navarro wasn't born in alaska navarro was born in boston and that explains the accent and which obviously kavik had no idea that she wasn't born in alaska he didn't know where she was from so it's it's very revealing, and you can tell that it's very hard for Navarro to let anybody in, because whereas Danvers tends to build walls around things, Navarro has built a wall around herself, and she doesn't want anybody getting too close because she doesn't want to get hurt. So clearly there's a lot of hurt in her past, and I thought that scene was very, very revealing, and I think you see, like, with... With Kavak, he asks the question and then he just listens. Yeah. And it, it goes back to that car scene where she's doing the listening when she's talking to God. But here's this man who's willing to listen to her. And maybe that's what she's looking for is someone that will listen to her. Because, oh. you know, look, we grew up in Ireland. We grew up in the, in the eighties and nineties in Ireland when it was quite a religious country. It, it isn't that anymore, but there was this thing of, 
you know, if you had a problem or you needed someone to listen to, you'd, you'd go and you'd talk to God. That was what people did. Navarro, by saying, I listen, almost means, almost to me, comes across as she doesn't think God wants to listen to her problems. Yeah, you remember as well in the scene where she's talking to Annie's brother uh, about that. And she says that um, he says about, you know, it must be nice to believe in God and to have that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, because it's quite lonely to not have a God. And she says, no, no, God's lonely, too. And I thought where you're going is quite interesting because ties in. It's almost like it's almost like what she listened is, is is God is God unloading his issues onto her? Is is she listening to terrible stories about the world? Is that where she gets her bleak worldview? What is she listening to? What exactly is God telling her? Or does she does he, she simply mean that she's aware of some divine presence in the world uh, when she tunes into it? And it could be as simple as that, maybe rather than a kind of more uh, straightforward dialogue situation, if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. The next scene worth the damn for us talking about, and I want to get a quick reaction for, for, from you on it, is where we see this protest. And it's, I think nearly all the faces I saw were natives. In fact, I think they definitely were because when uh, Leah comes along to the protest, uh, there's a little bit of awkwardness because she's, no, they weren't all native, but they were most heavily, predominantly native. And there's a little bit of awkwardness because she's Liz's daughter. And the girl says, no, listen, anyone who believes in the cause is welcome here. And the protesters are all chanting, we were here before. Uh, we are then informed that a kid has died. Again, this is sort of uh, obliquely linked to the mine. Um, then we hear this throat singing stuff, which is incredibly powerful and sort of builds to a huge intensity. And also Liz comes into the background and sort of, uh, no, sorry, that's a different scene. Uh, that's a different scene. Um, yeah, but so we hear this intense sort of throat singing. And then I notice as well, there's a picture in the background of the caribou on, on the wall. And I'm starting to think, okay, uh, we, that's how we started the show with those terrified animals or panicked animals throwing themselves off mm. the cliff because as we rational ra- rationalized at the time something either terrified them and we're all wondering is it this she we're talking about or is it just something else and is there just something terribly wrong and terribly askew in the world I I I I, I, I don't like to lean into the, th- the trope they used to use in Hollywood, Dave, of this sort of the magic native person or the magic person of color who's, you know, sort of in touch with nature and has this magical wisdom. I find it a little bit condescending as a, yeah. as a trope. I don't think we can really s- sort of label that at this. It does seem as if the local people are unified in their absolute certainty that the mind is bad. Yeah. And. The more we learn about the mine, the more I'm wondering, is that research center connected to this? Is what they were actually doing out there finding out just how bad the mine would be? Yeah. So that the company, the mining company could make their excuses and head off anything. Because if you remember, when Liz goes to the, the science teacher and asks him his opinion, he says they're trying to rediscover, you know, recreate an element and, or what well, I can't remember what, what exactly the, the term was, but he, he, he says it, it's never going to work. They're never going to be able to do that. 
And I would be of the belief that a research centre with, you know, a plethora of PhDs there and a plethora of PhDs elsewhere who've looked into this would be able to deduce the same thing as a high school science teacher, that this isn't going to work. So why would they be out there doing that if it was never going to work? So I think we'll find out more about why that research facility was actually there and what they were actually doing. I think the line that they were trying to rediscover this particle thing, I think that was just the cover story in the hopes that the uneducated people of, you know, the boonies Alaska would never actually look into it and see whether or not there was a possibility of it happening. They would think, oh, it's a positive thing. They're, they're trying to cure cancer. But in actuality, what they were trying to do was minimize the blowback of what the mine is doing to this town. Yeah, a bit like how Elon's Neuralink is going to help uh, paralyze kids to walk, but then it'll probably do other shit too. So it's important. It's important to see the bigger picture. Uh, we move then to a scene where we see Danvers using static to focus, which I think is interesting uh, on headphones. And there's a little twist and shout playback in the background, sort of distorted sound of it. Then we have that really awkward scene that I spoke about earlier on where uh, her stepdaughter comes in, Leah, she's wearing that uh, 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 those markings on her chin, and she actually has a T-shirt on it with a local face on it too. And there's this really awkward scene where Liz rushes into the bathroom, uh, goes into her room and then forces her to go into the bathroom and literally says the phrase, wipe that shit off. Now, of course, you could interpret it, like I said earlier on, as a white person moving in and uh, mm, trying, erasing, to, trying to scrub out the culture, erasing the cultural uh, heritage and all the rest of it. And of course, that is a valid interpretation. and It would be so daft not to see that. But we know enough about Liz now. And I think they've written it very carefully, especially with the earlier scene with the other kid, uh, to know that this is not a cruel woman who's cruel for the sake of it. And the fact that she obviously loves this kid or she wouldn't have taken on to raise and continue to raise and support this stepkid. She could have run away uh, and not, not stayed involved, but she has done. Uh, we know that she was uh, a mother herself. So uh, of her own specific uh, uh, offspring. Uh, who's no longer with us for whatever reason. So there's a lot going on there, and I think it's a little bit simplistic to just boil it down to that. I think what I'm seeing there is Liz understands what happens to people who go against the mind. Liz yeah. saw what happened to Annie. Yeah. And there is, there is this sort of almost uncanny similarity in the appearance of Annie and Leah. Yes. And it, 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 it can't be, that can't be ignored. Uh, and so... I think it's more the panic that, you know, often manifests itself in parents in, 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 in temper and anger, but it's fear for the child, you know? Yeah, a hundred percent. That's exactly my read on it as well is that Liz is aware of the lengths that the mind will go to, to get what they want, which again, I'm sure there's a lot more that we'll find out over the next three episodes or whatever. I think it's three we have left after this. But but it is portrayed in quite a simplistic, like, you know, white person tells person of color, a person of, you know, alternative um, race that, you know, don't be doing what you've always done. How do you, this is the way we do it. We're going to yeah. do it our way from now on, you yeah. know, which which 
considering what's going on in the world at the moment with the ethnic cleansing that we've seen in a certain part of the world, um, it, it's quite telling that this show is running now while that's going on as well, because there's there's certain things that are, you know, are linked there. Not not obviously not purposely linked. The show was was completed long before that all began, but it is just quite telling that the the idea of the white settlers and the the ethnic cleansing and the the expansion is very similar to what's gone on in in the uh, Israel Palestine conflict. That's it. You can't not see it. And we were here before, you know. Jesus. Mm. Uh, right. So the next thing I want to talk to you about is this mad scene where uh, Navarro's out in the ice again, and she hears a distorted version of Twist and Shout. There are all these little triggers, Dave, that the the that the, the writers are using, and. She, in the distance, sees a figure in the ice, way off in the distance. Uh, and as she goes to shout and continue and follow the figure, she falls over. She comes to, theoretically, or opens her eyes, and she's in some sort of desert environment. We see some sort of wreck of a machine of some sort in the background. And there's a hand that comes onto her shoulder and a voice says, tell my mommy. And as she looks around, she can see the hand and she can see a polar bear holding it. The one-eyed toy polar bear that we've seen a couple of times now. Um, what the hell is that supposed to tell us? I, I didn't know what to make of it either. I really didn't. I was just like, have I missed something? Uh, have I missed something? And I watched it back and I didn't miss anything. But again, this this one-eyed polar bear has turned up and turned up. So clearly that's going to lead to something else. There's going to be something more in that. But we got our first look into into Annie and who she is, or into into Annie, into Navarro and who she is in that scene with Kavik. Is this something else pointing to something in her past that we're going to learn in time? It's probably Liz's kid, no? See, that's where my mind goes as well, that maybe Liz lost a child. And that's why she's so good with the the little kid in that scene you mentioned earlier on. Yeah, Liz definitely did let lose a child because she had she got that tap on the shoulder and the mommy thing and we've mm. seen her we've seen her look at pictures and we saw the flashback scene where she's like on the floor with the kid and that music is playing in the yeah, background. Yeah. I wonder was Navarro present for something or did she share that trauma with Liz? It's 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 definitely there's something there. There's a connection there. It's 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 a weird one. And I think you're right. It's puzzling and probably intentionally so. Uh I do want to keep going here because we've got a lot to get through before we finish. Uh, we get to the stage where we're basically in the, the sixth day of night. Mm. Uh, and, um, I, 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 it's very good. The, the throat singing is going on at a wake for this kid who's died. We assume that's what it is. Danvers shows up. Uh, she makes eye contact with the mother. It's tense, awkward, not friendly looking. Liz kind of panics. She goes, to the bathroom, looks in the mirror, the throat singing intensifies to a huge level. And it's just a very, very unsettling kind of sequence. And we wonder what the tension is and it's building up, especially in the back of the confrontation with Leah early on. And now we're into a whole run of sort of body horror stuff. Uh, we're back again with the bodies. 
Pete has summoned his pal, the vet, who later yeah. on Liz says, could we do a little tiny bit of postmortem? And then she says, no, that would be super illegal, wouldn't it? Uh, but basically, this guy tells Liz and Pete that these guys died before they froze, that, you know, that is not how you die in the cold, he yeah. says. And he says that he has seen caribous die of plain fright and that it's a different thing entirely. That These guys probably died of cardiac arrest. And yeah. again, we've got to tie in with the caribou for the second time in this episode. And again, we are reminded that the expressions of these guys' faces are a result of sheer terror and that they did die from heart attacks. And if we didn't believe that, we're certainly going to have a double down for us in a second uh, as the episode wraps up. But anything in there that you wanted to mention that, that you think I haven't got right or that you wanted to expand upon? No, no, I think you've, you've, you've nailed that, that the whole way through. I, I do like the addition of the vet. I think he's, he adds a bit of a jovial kind of turn to some very heavy scenes because there's, I don't know, he just seems like, he'd be quite intentionally funny at times. Yeah, they they do that very well. They lighten the heaviest of scenes with a little bit of humor every so often. Mm. And all these actors are so good. Jodie Foster, actually in particular, can sort of give a throwaway line and it's just immediately deflates uh, any huge amounts of tension. Like earlier on when, and they're in the car and Navarro says to her, well, you're just a shit detective. And she goes, yeah, maybe so, maybe so. And she has that ability to not just absolutely fly off the handle if there's yeah. something more to be to be done with the situation. And this information obviously is taken on board by her. And so they go to confront this guy, Tagak, who they found. He lives in a sort of, uh, I can't remember what the word they used for it was. It's a sort of a, a outsider community, way outside the village. I can't remember what they used. There was some word for the type of community it was, Dave. You don't remember off the top of your head, do you? I don't, know. It was um, like some sort of, not like, sort of like a, a, a they, they're willfully living outside the con- the confines of society anyway. That's basically the gist of it. And when they get into this guy's cabin, eventually, uh, he could not be more distant. He does not know that the lads have died. He doesn't have any information that he wants to give them about anything, any or anything else. And in fact, when Navarro tells him of what happened, he seems spooked. And his reaction is to be angry, to threaten them with his gun and to tell them never to come back. And they leave having this angry man with a gun stepping towards them. Um, and it is a very interesting little sequence. I don't know what we're supposed to make of Oliver Tagak. Do you? No, no, I, I, he's just another interesting character that's been introduced to us. And unlike with most of the main characters in the first episode where we didn't find out a whole lot about them and their backstories, I assume in the next episode and the, the following one, depending on how long his arc in this runs, I assume we'll get quite a lot more information on him. That's, that's one of the things I like about the show <clears throat> is they give us a character, but they don't give us everything about him in one go. Yeah. So it leaves you wondering who is he? Why is he? What is he? And then they, they feed you bit by bit as they feel you need to know it as it becomes more relevant to the story. And of course, any good murder mystery is going to have like red herrings and, mm. and things that go nowhere. 
you know, that's the thing. Of, he might be nothing. He might yeah. have no involvement in it. He might just be a bit of a nut. Yeah, exactly. They, 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 there are going to be MacGuffins everywhere in a good mur- murder mystery. And this is where we get to the end of the show. People will have noticed that we've gone, we're going to go about 10 minutes longer than usual. This will be about an hour and 10, uh, because we want to have that little chat at the start, but also we can't leave out the details here at the end. And th- they ramp up the horror. This episode is like a separate, almost like a separate genre in and of, its, uh, of itself. And the end of it in particular, it's beyond horror. I don't know you even know where to start. If you're okay with it, what I'd like to do is just lay it out for folks what yeah. happens, and then yeah. we'll go back and talk about it individually. So the way it kicks off is we go to the hospital um, because Lund is awake. And when we see him for the first time, again, we're back to the body horror it's very shocking. And he's screaming in this really deeply unsettling fashion. And he says, we woke her. And now she's out there in the ice. She came for us in the dark. And then he begins to roar again. Now, that in and of itself is absolutely horrifying. But then a fight breaks out. It's those bloody hillbillies again. And Danvers has to go to break it up. And she gets involved in a fight scene in a way that's almost as unrealistic as 80-year-old Robert De Niro curb stomping a lad in The Irishman. But anyway, we leave that to one side. She is out there. While she's out there, oh God, this really threw me. We see Evangeline in the doorway and in the background we see Lund, who looks like he's passed out. But then he does that horror movie sit-up with no hands, you know, the unassisted sit-up. And he moves right really smoothly in a way that a guy who is as screwed up as him physically could not possibly do. He's blurred in the background. And then we turn around with Evangeline and we see him and he looks different. His face looks kind of possessed. And yeah. he says in this deeply, deeply unsettling version of his voice with a bit of reverb in it. Hello, Evangeline. Your mother says hello. She's waiting for you. And then he points. Now, again, I'm thrown by just how incredibly scary this is. Mm. He points and then he sort of slowly moves back and has a seizure. We find out then uh, as Navarro comes back in with the chaos caused by the seizure, or sorry, as uh, Danvers comes back with the chaos caused by the seizure, there's no time for any reaction because Pete's arrived, he's cracked the phone, and now we're on to horror moment number two. They go and they watch the phone. It's Annie's phone. There's a video on it and it goes fully Annie witch project because she's looking right up at the phone. It's her voice. She's terrified. She says, I found it. It's here. And then there's another moment where she hears a loud noise and she says, my name is Annie Kotok. If anything happens to me, please. And at that point, she seems to move very unnaturally backwards as if she'd been whisked or grabbed by something and the screaming starts and the freaking screaming doesn't stop. And whoever is the sound engineer on this episode really used all those noises, the throat singing, the breathing, the little eerie snippets of twist and shout. It's the sound design in this episode is incredible because it really adds to the unsettling aspects of to, to the story. Those two things, those two little set pieces, Dave, uh, Lund and then Annie's phone. Take us home with your take on them. Yeah, the Lund scene is is crazy, but it ties back into that car, that conversation in the car where Danvers makes it very clear she doesn't believe in any of this, the hokum, the bumkum. 
you know, and she's out of the room when this happens. So she doesn't see this happen. Yeah. So yeah. this is just Navarro by herself. Yeah. And Navarro is the one that believes in this. She is the one that believes in the afterlife and different spirits and things. But it is, it's, it's a very, it's a risky scene because there's a chance it goes pantomime a little bit, but it doesn't. Like they, they walk that line of it going pantomime because it, it, it could have kind of descended into almost like walking dead territory, you know, but they hold the line really well. The voice is, is haunting as it comes out and it delivers that line. Your mother's waiting for you. It delivers that line really well. And then, like you say, the scene with, with the phone, like the, just the, the, the sounds it's because it, with, with the, the scene in the hospital, it's the visual as well as the voice with the scene on the phone. You only get the audio. You only get to hear what's going on. So your, your mind starts to go as to what's happening to this girl. And you can hear a number of different noises. And like you said, the screaming doesn't stop. So that's almost more scary because you're starting to picture the worst thing you can imagine. And you're getting this audio of it as well. Like it, they're, they're two excellently done scenes. They really are. And to go as heavy hitting in back to back scenes, basically is a really, a really strong end to this episode. So there are questions to be answered there. Therefore, before the really unsettling bit about, uh, um, Navarro's mom waiting for her and the, the sort of apparent possession of of Lund brief possession by a, something other than him because the voice changes because of the things he says because he's able to he knows who Evangeline is which he doesn't and all that kind of stuff uh, before that he says those lines about you know sh- she came for us and uh, she's out there so we have an obvious we have an obvious question there that question is who's she and then later on on the video, and he says, I, I, I found it. Uh, and, and like, again, what? So I, they, did they, I are, imagine it or did Lund say White Walker? We woke her, he says. Oh, we woke her. We woke her and now she's out there in the ice. She came for us in the dark and then he starts to scream again. So like, my, my question is, okay, what is she? Uh, who is she? Is she some sort of uh, local native spirit demon thing? Is she nature? Is this mm. some broader broader thing? Is she, uh, like I say, some specific entity who died in a very distressing way and now sort of possesses people or roams the area or whatever is she a very specific evil spirit so that's my question there what who is she what what are they how are they even driving this where are we what are we supposed to think it's really interesting what you pointed out that you know that really uh, um, weird scene happens when danvers out of there but danvers is the one who's saying who is she you know yeah who who, who is this person you're talking about uh, and then she has to go so that's question number one i want you just to give your take on what you think that might be it's it's very hard to tell there's not a whole lot of clues there's no i've that's the thing it's it's impossible to tell at this point yeah like, sure. it, it, it does it could be 
it could be one of you, you listed three, four options there. It could be any one of them. It could be something else. Yeah. Like it, it is a, it is a horrifying, that's, that's the thing. It, it, it's the thing that gets your brain racing. But do you have start. any, do you have any take on what the it that uh, Annie found might be? Because she's clearly in some sort of freaky basement, dark, dying cave open. type thing. Yeah. Right. What, what is it that you, do you think? that she found and did she what? find it and now they've rewoken it is it the same thing oh the, you think the it is the she it could be i oh, don't know nice. it could be wow that's an interesting connection i hadn't made i just assumed they were separate things like you know what man the questions as usual are what le- we leave the episode with who is she what mm. is it uh and so on and so forth and I, I, I'll be honest with you, even though in some ways it's a little bit more by the numbers than other than the previous two episodes, uh, it continues to bring it. The narrative is advanced. The characters are more fleshed out. Mm. I could not actually be more engaged. I'm delighted, man, because I would I, I genuinely, for the sake of the show, would be open with you and say, oh, it's lost me here. I've, I've, I've gone off it. I'm actually all in still. Yeah, me too. That's the thing. I'm like. Like you said, it, it is a bit more by the numbers than, than the previous episodes, but you know, we do get some, some good information about some of the characters. We find out more about Navarro. We find out more about Danvers. We find out a little bit more about, um, about the younger prior, about Peter, because early in the episode, he's referred to as the big hockey champion. Yeah. And later in the episode, Hank gives him a pair of skates and says, oh, well, like you were four when you started skating, which like last week when the. What's her name? Ireland's favorite actress. Oh, Derby Kerwin goes and asks him about skating lessons. We were talking about, you know, why, why would you go to him? What's his history? Now we find out he was skating from the age of four. He was a hockey player, star, whatever it was. Was Hank his coach back then? Is that something as well that's involved in this? There's there's more to come with that, but it's all it's all unfolding. It's just doing it at a nice slow burning pace. They're not rushing to tell us anything because it's because there's other bits happening. They're not trying to overload us with with information. There's other bits that you're to glean from it yourself. There's bits they want you to think about. There's bits about how does Lund. Like, what's possessing Lund at this moment? Who is she? What did Annie find? Like, there's all, who, like, the, 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 the guy out in the outsiders commune. Like, what's his story? Like, do you know what I mean? There's, there's so many different areas that you can sit back and think about after and go, right, well, why is he there? Who is he? What's his backstory? How does he connect to the overall story? And then we get that kind of real strong ending with the, the two scenes and they both leave you thinking about really big questions that again might be the same person, but could be two completely different entities. So we'll find out next week, I suppose. It's really nice as well to be watching the show. I'm currently very uh, invested in watching Yellowstone, mm. uh, which, which I've been watching simultaneously with this, but I'm, I'm, I'm bli- bli- uh, blitzing through a lot more episodes because they're there. And whereas I love the show, 
the characters are terrible set of lads. I, I, there's nobody you can really like, to be honest with you. There's lads you can root for, but they're all awful people. Uh, and so it's nice to be watching a show where there's actually a load of sound people in here who are very interesting in their own way and are complex and all the rest of it, but you can actually like them too. And I love there that thing you mentioned about Pete. There's another throwaway thing talking about character development. At one stage, Danvers kind of looking at him funny and says, uh, you know, see, notice the the black eye that he's got. Says, oh, so the the great skate uh, hockey champion fell over in the ice, huh? Yeah. Okay, right. Uh, yeah. You know that kind of thing. That thing just, it's just a little throwaway line. Uh, it tells you something about nothing. him now. It yeah, tells you and, something and, about and, him. Do you know. It does, and it shows you what a great detective Navarro is as well. Again, like you said a couple of times, like a hawk misses nothing. Mm. We will hope to be back for episode four next week, missing nothing. No doubt we will. If we have missed stuff, tell us. Uh, you know our handles on Twitter, and if you don't know our handles on Twitter, find out our handles on Twitter by following Buzz Podcast on Twitter, and you'll see the stuff there. We'll be retweeting it. We'll be responding to stuff that people get on to us about let us know if you're liking the show because we really have appreciated the feedback so far um primarily of course let us know uh if you think good things about the show if you want to shout at the uh at into space about how the show is too woke maybe take your uh conversation elsewhere because i certainly won't be uh, entertaining any nonsense uh from anybody on that kind of uh, level but we will be back as dave says next week for episode four in the meantime keep an eye out for our second episode of the week of buzz we're sticking to this. We're a little bit short on research time this week, so we've decided to do one of the top 10 style episodes, and we're going to look at our top 10 favorite TV shows each. So it'll be a bit too lads down the pub talking about their favorite te- uh, TV shows. So hopefully that'll be something that you can all knock a bit of crack out of as well, and that will be coming soon after this one is released. From me, Trev Danny, from Dave Hendrick, from Buzz Podcast, from episode three of True Detective 4, it's goodbye from us, and we'll see you next week. Sports Social Podcast Network.